Okay, so as a kid, my church had this theology that Jesus was going to get here and the true believers would rise up, meet him in the sky, and then we would have a thousand years or so to just chill while everybody else got up to speed. And during this thousand years, you could do anything, go anywhere, build anything you wanted. So when I got to church summer camp, one of our first assignments was to design our house for this wonderful world of tomorrow. And understand, as one of the Lord's chosen believers, price would be no object. So I put everything I had into the assignment. First, the name. I called my place the Crystal Tower. It was cut from giant crystals like a diamond, and I placed it on the side of a cliff, and it soared into the sky up to cloud level where I kept my dragons. And from there, you could take the Crystal Tower elevator all the way down to the beach, and that was not all. If you didn't want to play in the sand that day, you could keep on descending under the waterline, down, down, and several thousand feet to the floor of the ocean and enjoy a view previously unattainable to humankind. From the bottom of the ocean to the top of the sky, guests would partake of stunning luxury at each and every turn. A gleaming hamburger machine wherever you might look and even Jesus himself would show up occasionally to enjoy the facilities. Hey, what's up, JC? I was putting the finishing touches on my design and my buddy, Tom got up and said he was done. What's that? And Tom showed me his picture. And he said, well, you see, this here, here's a nice two-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath ranch house, going to have a little goat farm on 40 or so acres. And here, I got a nice stream in the back there, see, and even a little wire coop where we can keep a few chickens. And Tom's all smiling, but it made me very angry. And I asked him, have you lost your mind? And the next life, when Jesus gets here, you're going to live on a goat farm? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have some of that good, rich topsoil for growing beets because goats love the beets. You're not going to live there when Jesus gets back. That's unbiblical and wholly ridiculous, and neither Jesus nor anyone else will stand for that kind of nonsense. What, am I supposed to have dragons? There's not even any such thing as dragons. I can have as many dragons as I want. It's right there in the Bible. And Tom says this. Well, your dragons, they're of the devil. And I was about to let my fist do the talking then when our camp counselor, Mr. Jordan, ran in telling us both to sit down and stop all that racket. Your next life is going to be spent burning in hellfire unless you learn to resolve your differences. And we both had to say sorry, even though he was the stupid one. But all this time spent designing my house for the next life got me wondering, is there really another life? And what happens when we pass from this one. You know, every week, we bring you stories from around the world, from underground caves and mountaintops. But this week, we're bringing stories from the other side, from across the river Styx, through the pearly gates and back, stories of real people coming face to face with their inevitable demise, all to answer this one question. Do I get my crystal tower or not? PRX and NPR, you're listening to a very special program we're calling The Other Side. Amazing stories about what lies beyond. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. You know, when we first decided we're actually going to create an episode featuring stories touching on the greatest question, my instinct was to go back and explore the works of one of my heroes, one of the greatest storytellers of all time, creator of the Twilight Zone, Mr. Rod Serling. Little did I suspect that Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman would talk to Rod Serling's daughter, Anne Serling. And really, it's amazing that even from the other side, the master still teaches. As a child, I didn't know exactly what my father did for a living. It wasn't until some mean boy on the playground asked me if I was something out of the twilight zone. And I remember going home and I asked my dad what that meant. He explained that he wrote for a series and he was the announcer on a show called The Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. 
Every Christmas we watch The Night of the Meek. The Night of the Meek is a Christmas episode. My family and friends all sprawled out across my dad's office floor. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. The last time I saw my father, he was lying in a hospital bed. He had had uh, a heart attack. The decision was made that he really needed open-heart surgery. It was, in 1975, brand new. On the night before his surgery, we... We kissed him goodnight, and we, we told him, we'll see you tomorrow. I was out in the hall drinking out of the drinking fountain, and I remember looking up and seeing the doctors and the nurses all coming toward us. And I remember them telling us, we're sorry he's gone. We walked to the nurse's station, and a nurse with a sad smile, she handed us a small paper bag, and in the bag was his wedding ring, his watch, and his paratrooper bracelet. And I remember thinking his, his whole life reduced to ounces. It was so shocking, you know, when the hospital doors blew open and there's this brilliant blue summer day. And as we all got into the car, the, the radio was on and suddenly there was a news bulletin that said, Rod Serling died today at 2.20 p.m. And then someone, I, I guess it was my mother, clicking the radio off. It was difficult at first seeing mail just that day delivered to him and his hairbrush on the sink and his shoes by the door, and yet he he wasn't there. I would panic when I thought that I would forget the way he smiled or, or the sound of his laugh or just his presence in the kitchen, in the hall, everywhere. It was years until I finally decided that I felt a little more resilient and I could finally watch my father's Twilight Zones. So uh, we rented a projector. It was a reel-to-reel projector. And I watched in a darkened room of our cottage. Our, our cottage is on, on a lake. I remember hearing the boats on the water and hearing laughter on the lake and all of the summer sounds and of this life that moved forward without my dad. But I, I randomly selected one episode called In Praise of Pip. Submitted for your approval, one Max Phillips. A slightly the worse for wear, maker of book. This episode was filmed at the Pacific Ocean Park, which was the same amusement park that my dad took my sister and me to. How about some white pop or some cotton candy? Sure. Some rides and some cotton candy, anything you want. What was so striking and so personal about this story was some of the dialogue. And in this episode, Jack Klugman says to his son, Pip, who's your best buddy? Who's your best buddy, Pip? Pip answers, you are Pop. Hey, Pop, you're my best buddy. And I realize this, this is the exact routine that my dad and I did. And my dad had written this episode. That's what my Pop used to say. But as I was watching in the, in the next 30 minutes, hey, Pop, you're my best buddy. it brought a reconnection with my dad in a, in a way I had... Not expected. It was at once overwhelming and tremendously consoling. As I watched the closing narration, uh, and I watched my dad saying, The, the ties, ties of, of flesh, flesh are deep and strong. The capacity to love is a vital, rich, and all-consuming function of the human animal. And you can find nobility and sacrifice and love wherever you might seek it out. Down the block... In the heart. Or in the twilight zone. I found it in a, in a darkened room on a summer afternoon. Something invisible, inaudible, and, and until then quite mistakenly presumed gone. Thank you so much, Anne Serling, for letting us into your world. And Anne Serling has a new book coming out. It's called Another Dimension, Growing Up with the Man Behind the Twilight Zone. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman and Renzo Gorio. Now, there is a place, a place between life and death, when the body is in the last stages of letting go. And our next guest, she learned a lot about that moment when she started working as a nurse in an ICU.
I chose to be a nurse because I knew that it would be something I'd be good at, that I could, I could care for people, and I could use my own natural compassion that way. During my first week as an ICU nurse, I remember holding a woman's hand as she slowly and deliberately fell into death. She had cancer, but she wanted to be allowed to just die without us intervening or doing anything for her. It was peaceful, just her and me, the dark room, just kind of a slow descent into death. And that's really what I imagined working in the ICU would always be like. But in reality, in the ICU, we took people who were basically dead already and proceeded to hook them up to every machine that we possibly could just to keep their bodies from doing what they wanted to do, which was to die. The people who wanted me mainly to keep the patients alive were their families. They just wanted this one last chance to prove to their grandmother or to their mother or to their father or to whoever it was that they loved them. So they felt like the only way that they could do that was to keep them alive, which meant that we had to torture that person every day. I felt sad for the people, for the patients, and I felt sad for me because I felt as if I wasn't doing good in the world. I was actually hurting people. I never quite realized how much the deaths in the ICU or the lack of deaths bothered me, really, until I became a nursing supervisor, which meant I also had the duty of pronouncing people dead. The first time I pronounced somebody, I was really, really nervous I think all of us have this fear that we're going to be pronounced dead and not be dead. And so I was terrified in a way that not many people are that I would pronounce somebody dead that wasn't dead. As soon as I started to go in the unit, I realized, oh my gosh, I think this is the lady whose granddaughter I spoke with the day before. I'd had an interaction with her the day before about something entirely different, and she was crying at the side of the bed. So... Now there's this person that I liked and who I felt sorry for. She'd already cried on my shoulder, who's waiting for me to pronounce her grandmother dead. And I'm completely nervous because I'm afraid that, you know, I'm going to do it wrong. So I walked over to her grandmother, and I listened to her heart, and I listened for 60 seconds while I was looking at my watch. There's kind of like almost a show to it. I pick up the stethoscope very obviously, and then I place it on a different part of their chest to listen. And then I said, the time of death is 3.42. Her granddaughter just kept yelling at me, no, 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 no. She knew that there was nothing I could do to bring her back, but there was some way in which somehow she thought if I could change my mind about it, that maybe her grandmother would come back. I had to take a second to think about it, and then finally I said, no, I'm really sorry, she's passed away, she's passed. Then she came up and she hugged me. She was so intent about it, her not being dead and then so grateful in the end. It just, it made me feel like I was providing a, I was in the right line of work finally. I think there's something really reverential about a recent death because the body's still there and it was just breathing a few minutes ago and there was a person there. I really think that they can hear me as I go about my job or at least just that little part of them can hear me. I always call them by name and I always speak to them as if they're living and I treat them as reverentially and with as much care and as much empathy in my voice as I possibly can because if they can hear me, I want them to remember that as their last thing. Big thanks to Jane Churchin for sharing her story. You can read an award-winning essay she wrote on this subject in the Best American Essays of 2011. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. Now, you're listening to Snap Judgment, and today we're diving into a raft of stories that may provide some tiny sliver of insight into what happens next. Don't go anywhere. 
We've got stories coming up you will not believe when Snap Judgment, the other side episode, continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment. This week, we're trying to pull back the curtain just a little bit on the greatest mystery of all. What happens when we leave this world? Now, I want to introduce you to Sergio Hernandez. His relatives are originally from Juarez, but over time, the family spread out across Mexico. And Sergio's grandmother told him this story about the strangest bus ride she's ever been on. My grandma just dropped off my aunt in Chihuahua, the capital city, and she was headed back to Juarez, where she lived. And the way that people got around back then was by taking a Greyhound kind of bus. And the bus driver was standing outside of the bus waiting for all the passengers to load. And my grandma recognizes him, and he was this distant cousin, and his name was Alberto. They hadn't really seen each other in a long, long time. And so she goes up to him and says, Alberto, do you remember? It's me, Dora. And she goes, oh, Dora, how are you? Oh, I remember you when you were little. My grandma sits in the front, so she's able to talk to Alberto, the driver, and catch up with him. That's when they start talking about how was Aunt such and such, how was our Aunt Grace, who died, who's still living. When they were younger, the family members kind of lived in the same town, but then people moved away, and the family, I guess, was spreading out. People weren't seeing each other as often. This kind of distance kind of kills them, you know? So there was a lot of people to catch up about. It's kind of a, a link back to that part of the family who she hadn't seen in years and years. When she came back to Juarez, she's like, okay, goodbye, Alberto, it's nice seeing you again. We, we miss you guys. Well, that's the thing. After that, she saw her brother, and she said, you never guess who I ran into. I saw our old cousin Alberto, remember him? He goes, yeah, I remember him, but, you know, he's, he's been dead for about three years. You, had, you didn't hear about that? He succumbed to cancer. She thought, she thought he was joking, but, you know, he had been dead for three years. She, uh, she got really nervous. She wasn't a very superstitious woman. She didn't believe in ghosts. She wanted to get down to the matter, and so she went back to the station. She was really adamant about finding out who was the driver on that bus. But the four to five drivers that drive that line from Juarez to Chihuahua, it wasn't any of them. So snappers, the next time you get on the bus, be nice to the driver. You never know where they might be from. Thanks so much to Sergio Hernandez for telling this story. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. I can recall when both of my children were born. Say what you want to, I do not care. Watching this new person enter the world was magic. It was straight magic of the highest order. And I remember holding my daughter for the first time. She was so alert, her eyes just blazing, looking right back at me, locked. And she had just emerged from the greatest mystery of all. And I wanted to ask her, did God say anything to you before you got here? What is all this about? But she just looked at me. She wouldn't say, she wouldn't tell me. 
Well, Snaps, Pat and C.D. Miller had the opposite experience when he got to ask some questions of his own. While I was in high school, my grandmother fell ill. She was just over 80 years old, only had a few months to live, and decided that she wanted to spend her final days living in my family's home. Before she moved in with us, my grandmother had never really been a big part of my life. But little did I know how deep it was about to get. Now my grandmother had seven children and was very involved in her church, so there were a lot of people coming in to visit and pay their respects before she passed. Because of that, I didn't really like being home during the day. Our house was constantly filled with people from all over, none of which I knew. They all wanted to talk with my grandmother one-on-one, so I would let them have their time, wait until they had left, and then visit with my grandmother in the evening. She became a friend in short time, and before I headed out for school or work, I would pop my head into her room, say hi, and ask if there was anything I could get for her. And when I returned back home, I would ask her the same. And through sitting and talking with each other, I really got to know her. As her health declined, she would sleep more and more, and she lost most of her appetite and wasn't eating very much. But when I would cook for her, she would always eat every last bite. One day while I was at work, I got a phone call from my family. They told me that in the morning, she didn't wake up and was now non-responsive. The medical staff explained that she was in a coma. I was shook up by the news and didn't really know what to do, so I headed back home. I went into her room and I saw her lying there peacefully, like she was in a deep sleep. I walked over to her, leaned in and said, Hi, Grammy. She breathed in and said, That's my boy. She spoke back to me. I couldn't believe it. So just to be sure, I leaned in again and said hi. And she replied, Hi, sweetie. I was so happy. I thought that I was never going to be able to talk with my grandmother again. But there she was, talking, right back to me. And this continued. It became this thing where her friends, family, and even her children, all of these people who had spent a large part of their lives with her couldn't get her to talk. But I, for some reason, had the ability to wake her. People marveled at my connection with her, to the point that one day, while a group of visitors were sitting with my silent grandmother, I was called in to get her to say a few words. I sat with her, said hello, engaged her in conversation, and everyone was astonished that she would talk with me. Now, as is the case for anybody losing a loved one, the threat of them passing brings up everyone's issues with death. Unlike myself, my grandmother was very religious. The thought of her dying scared me, and after visitors sat with my grandmother, they would come out of the room and share with us their views on death, the afterlife, God and whatnot, and what my grandmother was experiencing. Out of all the theories I heard, the one that seemed to make the most sense to me was that my grandmother, while in a coma, was in a middle ground between life and death. If that was true, I realized, then I could ask her about what she was going through. So that night, I walked into her room. The lamp on her nightstand cast a soft light upon her, and because of the coma, The muscles in her face had relaxed, which caused her wrinkles to fade away. She looked ten years younger, and her face glowed. I breathed in the room. I walked over to her and said hello, and she responded with, That's my boy. I paused and asked her, Grammy, what do you see? And in her weak voice, she said, Bright light. I took a deep breath in and exhaled. Is God real? God is beautiful. Is heaven real? Heaven is beautiful. I asked her what she was feeling and she told me love, pure love. I sat there trying to process everything she had told me. I could feel each beat of my heart pulsing through my temples. I couldn't feel my legs, 
I couldn't feel my fingers. All I could do was sit and watch her resting. I watched her slow breathing, her closed eyes, and I was overwhelmed. The next morning, I debated whether to tell anyone what had happened. Even if I had wanted to, I wouldn't know where to begin. I stopped by my grandmother's room, kissed her on the forehead, and without saying a word, went on to work. Now, I worked at a golf course and spent most of my time alone in this long, skinny garage where I parked all of the golf carts. So there I was, pacing, back and forth. Is my grandmother for real? Is God really real? Or what? I didn't know what to make of it. So I decided to make a bet with this so-called God. And it went like this. The garage I worked in was a long concrete hall with golf carts parked on each side. And at the far end, about 50 yards away, there was a tiny cabinet stand, just wide enough to hold a couple scorecards. I said, God, or whatever you are, if you are real, then I'm going to throw this ball and it is going to hit that cabinet on the other end of this garage. If it hits the cabinet, then I will believe in you. But if I throw the golf ball and it misses, then I won't believe in you. I will turn my back on you forever and I will never believe. This is your one chance to prove yourself to me. I began bouncing the golf ball, pacing back and forth, getting all worked up. I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to do it. This is it. I'm serious. I wound up from my fastest pitch, took a few running steps, and threw the golf ball as hard as I could. It hit a drain grate right in front of me and bounced off behind me into the carts. I missed it. Totally missed it. I began walking down the garage thinking to myself, Man, is that it? Is everything my grandma telling me not true? So there is no God, no heaven, nothing? I continued walking, and when I got about ten feet away from the cabinet, I stopped and said to myself, No, this isn't right. That wasn't supposed to happen. And while I was looking at the cabinet, I heard something. I looked behind me, and there was the golf ball, rolling, nice and steady, nice and slow. And it rolled right past me, towards the cabinet, and hit it, right in the middle. Not on the corner, not off to the side, like exactly in the middle of the cabinet. More middle than I thought was middle. And with that, I got the chills. I don't know how many angles it must have hit, bouncing off all those carts, down the bumpy path, over and around all the drain grates for 50 yards, waiting until I got right up to the cabinet to hit it. I was blown away. A few hours later, I got back home, and my grandmother's condition had took a turn for the worse. And it soon became apparent that she was really on her way out. She never spoke to me again. Instead, I spoke to her, and I told her that I loved her very much, and I thanked her for everything she had taught me. Sometime after that, her breathing became less and less frequent. The family gathered around, and while I was sitting there next to her, holding her hand, she breathed out, and she didn't breathe back in. That was it. She had passed. During our time together, I believe that my grandmother invited me to experience something that was well beyond the both of us. It was undeniably powerful and real to me. After her death, I never joined the church, but I also never made another bet with God, asking for proof. At her funeral, the church was filled with people mourning her death, and while everyone was crying, a piece of me smiled because she had shown me where she was going. And now, she was finally there. Thank you very much. Pat Masidi Miller. That piece is dedicated to Lonnie Miller from her grandson, 
may she rest in peace. When Snap Judgment returns, we're going to touch the hand of the great spirit in the sky. For real. When Snap Judgment, the other side continues. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Today, this episode, we're calling it The Other Side. We're talking to people who have danced on that edge between living and dying and return to tell their stories. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, buckle up. Rita Daniels, take it away. This is Ian and his parents. My name is Ian Taylor Sims. I'm Albert Sims. I'm Ian's dad. I'm Ellery Sims. I'm Ian's mom. And when Ian was 12 years old, he started flying airplanes. Ian was a natural pilot. Flight consumed his life. And every single weekend, he would take flying lessons with this guy, Johnny Victory. And before long, it was obvious that Ian was a pilot prodigy. I just gotta fly and nothing else. But when Ian was 14 years old, his life took a drastic turn. One night, he and his older buddy were headed out of town on a camping trip. I wasn't entirely comfortable with it. Once we got on the highway, boy, look out. We started cooking, pedal to the metal. In the dead of the night, in the middle of nowhere. My very last conscious observation, I saw the horizon line roll 90 degrees counterclockwise, and the centrifugal force literally pulled my friend out of the high side of the first roll. The driver had lost control of his half-ton pickup, and the truck rolled. He landed on the highway, he got a scratch on his forehead, but the truck continued rolling two more times, came to a stop directly on top of me. The truck was flattened like a pancake, and Ian was still inside of it. My friend, I heard him come running up, panicking, and he was calling my name. Ian, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't die, don't die. And he was crying. Out of his body now, Ian watched as his friend began to dig with his bare hands through the rubble. And uh, I was hovering above him, and I got the feeling that I may or may not ever wake up from this nightmare that I was having. Who got the phone call first? I did. I couldn't even speak. I mean, Holy Cross Hospital says Ian's in critical condition. We have to go fast. Ian's ribs had shattered, shredding his spleen and kidneys and lungs which then in turn all filled with blood and they began to cause anoxic brain injury and the right aorta of his heart was macerated. It was just a bad scene altogether. He had to be airlifted immediately to the region's best hospital and so they loaded his body hooked up to these machines onto a helicopter and it took off. Here's how Ian experienced it. I remember feeling like I was being swept away from... The helicopter, thundering, chop, chop, chop. 
As I drifted away, there was nothing. It was quiet, dark, and empty. I was so about to give up. And then, within that void, Ian saw something. Only because I was looking for something, anything to get my bearing on, I saw it, a tiny blue star, way, way off in the distance. As I watched this little blue star, it grew larger. When it was closer to me, I saw it was a silhouette of a hand floating in space. Did you touch the hand? I did. At that moment, I made contact, and I saw in a flash my entire life in the past. Ian saw a series of images from his childhood and the life he had lived. And then? I saw something else, a glimpse of my own future. He saw future memories, scenes from life that he was in but had yet to be lived. And that's how I knew I was going to I was going to have a future. And when the helicopter landed at the big hospital, all these people were sobbing and crying and the doctors were telling us they didn't think that he'd live through the night and that we should all go in and say goodbye because it was so bad. Ian had arrived with less than 1% chance of survival. And the chief of surgery worked on him for only 35 minutes before he made a phone call to request permission. Permission to pull the plug and let me die on the table. Little did he know, already had. And one of the doctors came and approached his parents. He just asked my father if he would like for him to call in a priest to give me my last rites. He's telling me that you need to call a priest. And it really pissed me off. I said no. He'd slipped into a full-blown coma. And the nurses all said coma patients can hear. So we played Ian's favorite Top Gun theme song just over and over again. And my flight instructor, Johnny Victory, he knew that somewhere in my mind I must remember flying. So he made this recorded flight lesson. Trim tab set for takeoff. Radios and electrical equipment on. And on a Walkman, they play him Johnny Victory's flying lessons again and again. So Ian would go through, we hoped, mentally visualizing his plane, getting it ready to fly. That was a major motivational instrument for my crushed soul and tired spirit was to uh, think about flying. We chose consciously to make it positive, all the while being terrified that it wasn't going to go like we wanted. The hospital thought they were all nuts and lectured them about being in denial. We're fully in denial. Denial is one of my favorite words. We denied that Ian was toast. He's still asleep at four or five weeks. The trauma surgeon said this is as good as it gets, meaning Ian would be in a coma for life. They come to a decision that he is truly a vegetable, and I knew that wasn't true because when I would brush his teeth, he would move his tongue to the other side of his mouth. The hospitals decided it's time for him to be moved to a rest home to pass his final days. But at his parents' insistence, the doctors agreed to come in in the morning and give him one final test. And so once again, I'm alone with Ian that night. He's like, out. I said, honey, they don't think that you can hear us. And tomorrow, they're going to come and they're going to run some tests on you. And I don't know what you have in mind, but you have to think of something. Because if you don't pass the test, then we have to go to the rest home. So come up with something good. Okay, so the big day of reckoning came. All these doctors come in, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is it. So Dr. Benzel gets in Ian's face, and he says really loud, Ian, Ian, if you can hear me, raise two fingers on your right hand. Albert and I look at each other, yeah, like, why don't you just get up and walk, Ian? I mean, we, you know, we just couldn't even believe that he would say that. And nothing. 
I actually heard him and I actually tried. So then he said it again. Ian, Ian, if you can hear me, hold up two fingers. And again, nothing. I was trying to move my right fingers. So he does it one more time. Ian, Ian, if you can hear me, hold up two fingers. And on his broken arm, Ian holds up two fingers. (laughs) And, oh my God, I mean, one intern spun around and screamed. The other one dropped to his knees. Dr. Benzel looks and he says, do you know what a sophisticated brain function you have to have to hear a command and obey it? Well, then Ian began to wake up. And it's not like TV where they wake up and go, where are we? You know, no. They begin to wake up slowly. I was in this sterilized, padded, white, hospital-smelling environment. And I'd been there a long time because I can feel it in my lungs. This was it. I'm not going to wake up anymore. And I better start getting real. Two and a half months into rehab, Ian finally begins to speak. And one day, his family is all gathered in his room, and they're talking about Ian's friend, the guy that was driving and caused the accident. And he said, in his eerie, raspy, post-comatose voice, I hope you're not mad because of him. I got to shake the hand of God. And then one day, Ian's flight instructor, Johnny Victory, saunters into his room. My flight instructor came in and said, Hey, buddy, do you want to go flying? And I could not remember what what flying meant, what flying was. I heard him ask me if I wanted to go somewhere. And so I nod my head. Yes, you know, I agreed. I wanted to go out of there, anywhere. And once we left those hospital grounds, we went straight to Coronado Airport. He had rented a 172-737 Zulu Juliet. There sat a beautiful single-engine airplane, just like the ones that Ian used to pilot. His mom climbs into the back. Johnny helped me climb up into the pilot seat when I heard that hollow aluminum door closing. My right hand took over like my hand knew what it was doing. Doors and windows closed and latched. Trim tab set for takeoff. Throttle open one eighth of an inch. Magnetos, radios, and electrical equipment on. I was just watching my hand move automatically. Johnny came around to the co-pilot seat. Boy, once I lit up that engine, my scalp was tingling, itching. I felt like it was on fire almost. We took off. I did a few shallow banks to one side and the other. Johnny's going, pull it up, Ian. And uh, I rolled out, heading directly toward the same airspace where my spirit had left the helicopter three and a half months earlier. The sun was just low in the sky in the late afternoon. And just as that plane is hovering at 10,000 feet with Ian manning the controls in the cockpit... That moment I had seen before, and that was indeed one of the memories from my future memory that I had seen in the helicopter. There it is. That's when it happened. And at that point, I knew right then I was in charge of my life and my recovery. And uh, that was cool. It was like being born in the sky. That's what I felt like. So here we go back again. So climb back quick to descend. Arms out, arms out. Keep on flying, brother man. Keep on flying. We'd like to thank Ian Sims and his entire family for sharing their story with Snap. Ian has gone on to make a full recovery. And part of his rehabilitation treatment that he engages in to this very day, 20 years later, includes advanced hyperbaric oxygen treatments that reawaken brain cells 
And to find out more about it, or to read the book Ian wrote about his experience, visit snapjudgment.org. The piece was produced by Rita Daniels. One of the many talents of Snap producer Pat Mercedes-Miller, in addition to storytelling and music production, is that he just happens to speak dog. And thank goodness, because I've asked him to step in and translate this next story. Pat Mercedes-Miller, the microphone is yours. This is Joe Dwyer. My name is Joe Dwyer. I live in Nutley, New Jersey. Joe remembers a story about a young dog named Daniel. He was a lonely dog. Nowhere to go, no one to see. Until one day, he ended up on the doorstep of an animal shelter in Alabama. Daniel just appeared one day in front of a shelter in Florence, Alabama. He was given a place to stay and food to eat, but unfortunately... He was only allowed to stay there for a short time. Once a dog enters, they have four days to get adopted. So for four days, Daniel put on his best show for visitors at the shelter. He gave them big puppy dog eyes and wagged his tail when they passed, hoping that someone would take him home. If they're not adopted in four days, they are to face the gas chamber. Daniel's charm wasn't enough, and sadly, after four days... The shelter had no choice but to put him down. Daniel was walked, you know, from whatever cage he was in and put into that gas chamber and... The door was shut. The gas was let in. And Daniel's only hope was that all dogs really do go to heaven. After his time had passed, the staff returned to retrieve his remains. The door was opened. He was alive. The staff couldn't believe it. Daniel had survived. The the odds are astronomical. The fact that he lived is truly an extraordinary miracle. Daniel, although shaking and a little bit woozy, was standing at the door of the gas chamber, and he was actually wagging his tail. The personnel there, they decided that he was meant to live. He was then rushed to a veterinary facility where he received medical attention. He was given veterinary care there and teeth cleaned and all that good stuff. Once Daniel was in good health, the staff cleaned him up and he was flown in first-class fashion to a rescue facility in New Jersey. There, his legend preceded him. He was no longer the bothersome beagle in search of a home. Instead, he was known as the Miracle Dog, the dog who had cheated death. The shelter received thousands of applications from people all over the country wanting to adopt him. Joe, like many others, decided to put in an application. And when Joe came under review, it was decided the two would meet. We, we met outside and went for a walk with our other dogs. He greeted our other dogs with love, and he greeted my family the same way. It was a nice fit. Daniel finally had a place that he could call home. And soon after he arrived... All eyes were on Daniel. The attention and love that he received uh, certainly went skyrocketing. He was up for awards, he was featured on TV shows, and he even decided to get into politics. There's some legislation that is right now, through Daniel's influence, in process, Daniel's law, which would outlaw the use of the gas chamber in the state of Pennsylvania. I, I have made the comment many times that if Daniel was running for president, he'd win in an overwhelming fashion. (laughs) And while Daniel rallies to stop the use of the gas chamber on dogs, Joe will be right by his side. His stage is to get out there and be in the public eye. That's secondary. The priority is that he gets a lot of love. His first and most important thing is that he's a family member in this home. And he means the world to us. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? Who gets a treat? Snappers, I am thrilled to report that Daniel the Dog has been nominated for the Emerging Hero Dog Award. Now he's got my vote. Doesn't he? He's got my vote. 
Joe Dwyer. He's a motivational speaker and author in the process of writing a book about Daniel's story. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. And wait, wait, what was that? (laughs) Well, Daniel, he wants you to know, don't you worry. The show may be coming to an end, but Snap is never over. Hours of Snap storytelling with a beat just for you. Snapjudgment.org. And Facebook, be my Facebook friend. Head over to Snap Judgment. We have a Twitter handle. It's Snap Judgment ORG. Snap was produced by myself in a beautiful choir of celestial beings cast down from on high. And it is my distinct pleasure to recognize my guardian angel, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna Sussman wants to believe. Pat Masidi Miller swims toward the light. Stephanie Fu swims toward the darkness. Jamie DeWolf hears voices. Rita Daniels has seen this. All this happened before. Renzo Gorio has the answers, but Lindsay Lee Keel is not one to ask. And of course, Will Urbina cannot be bothered. Now, did you ever meet someone who just likes crackers? Just plain crackers. No cheese, no jelly, no nothing like that. No worries. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting who wants you to know that crackers are a delicious treat you can enjoy anytime. I've got a nice warm cracker right here, right now. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the public radio exchange operating on that gossamer veil between the public and the media, PRX.org. And even though this is not the news, nowhere near the news, in fact, you could have one of those near-death experiences. Look down and see yourself with a great big smile on your face and wonder why you are grinning like an idiot, only to discover this is no state of cosmic bliss. No, my friend, you have a gas leak and you better get back in your body straight away and wake everybody up. Yeah, you could do all that, all of that, and still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NPR.